You're listening to Pastor Ryan Couch at Calvary Chapel of Crook County as he teaches through the book of 1 Samuel. If you have your Bibles with you, let's join Pastor Ryan now. Okay, 1 Samuel chapter 16. We're going to look at 16 and 17 tonight. Uh, This is really the beginnings of the life of David. And we have been looking at Samuel's life and then uh, Saul, the first king of Israel, and we've been seeing his life. Uh, And now we're making a transition into the life of David. And Saul is still going to be part of the picture. It's just that God has now rejected Saul. And he has now put his blessing on David. And the interesting thing about that is that we're going to see David anointed as the king of, of Israel. And yet he doesn't become king for 25 years. 25 years God is using the circumstances of David's life, many of which are very difficult, with Saul wanting to kill him, throwing spears at him, pretending to be mad before the king of the, of the Philistines, uh, scratching at the wall and foaming at the mouth, and then living in a cave all alone. It, the amazing circumstances that led David finally to take the throne. And you know what? God has a plan for each of our lives and and God may have even shown you something that he wants to use you in, but it doesn't typically happen like that. And sometimes God can show you something and then it will be many years before that comes to pass. And that's what we see with David. And, And I love the fact that you never hear David say, well, I'm supposed to be king. What in the world is going on here? What, why are you not respecting me? Why, why don't I have the throne? Why aren't people at my beck and call? He just humbly takes each day as it comes. And I love that about David. I think it's a great lesson for all of us. And tonight as we make our way through these two chapters, we're going to take note of four characteristics from the life of David. And the first is found in chapter 16, verses 1 through 13. And, and that is that he was not great in the eyes of men. David was not great in the eyes of men. And we're going to see that sort of juxtaposed, compared with the life of Saul. Saul was great in the eyes of men. But David, as we're going to take note of, was not. Now the Lord said to Samuel, How long will you mourn? For Saul. And so apparently Samuel is super bummed about what happened with Saul. And we don't blame Samuel for that. We don't um, look down on Samuel for the fact that, that this really was a big deal to him. He was close to Saul. He, his heart broke for the way that Saul ended up. But there's a time for mourning. There's a time for looking back. There's a time for reflection, but then there's a time for action and a time for moving forward. And, and you remember Moses as they were up against the Red Sea and he was just like bummed out about everything. And, and, and God just said to him, look, go, go forward. It's time to move on. What are you going to do? You're going to look back? You're going to wish you had never left? No, it's time to go forward. The same with Joshua when he blew it at Ai. And he was seeking God and he was on his face and, and the Lord said, look, get up. It's, it's not a time for prayer, it's a time for action. And, and this is a time where, where Samuel needs to just move on. He, and maybe in your life right now, maybe you, there's been a lot of looking back, a lot of, of mourning, a lot of 
wishing that you had done things differently or, or just bummed out about the way that your kids have turned out or, or the, the circumstances of your life. And, and God's maybe saying to you tonight, you know what, you just need to move on. I recognize that your heart is broke, but, but I have something more for you. How long will you mourn for Saul, seeing I have rejected him from reigning over Israel? And so, in other words, look, my will has been done. I've rejected him. It's time for you to, to figure that out and to just accept my will. Fill your horn with oil and go. I am sending you to Jesse, the Bethlehemite, for I have provided myself a king among his sons. And so... It's time to move forward because I have something else. I, I've raised up another man. And Samuel would have known exactly what this horn filled with oil was all about. And Samuel said, how can I go? If Saul hears it, he will kill me. And again, I, I love this because Samuel is a guy that we all look to and say, did he ever do anything wrong? I mean, the Bible doesn't really record any sin in his life and it can become kind of discouraging, right? When you read about people in the Bible and that don't record, that it doesn't record any of their shortcomings. And it's kind of like, how can you even relate to this guy? You know, how can you relate to Daniel who seemingly never made a wrong decision? We know he did, but the Bible doesn't record it. And the same with Samuel. The Bible doesn't record his sin, which probably tells us he never made any major life-altering stupid decisions like David did. You know, he didn't commit adultery. He didn't kill somebody. He didn't do stupid stuff. But we know he sinned, and we know that he made decisions that, that weren't good because the Bible says that every man has sinned. And so when I read this about Samuel, that he was afraid... I can relate to him. When I see that he was mourning too long and he was just discouraged, I can relate to that. And he's afraid, and for good reason, because Saul's a maniac. Saul's an egomaniac. And as soon as he found out that Samuel was going to anoint someone else, the king, he would kill Samuel for treason. And he would get people behind him to do so. And so the Lord said, take a heifer with you and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Then invite Jesse to the sacrifice, and I will show you what you shall do. You shall anoint for me the one I name to you. And I love this as well. God meets Samuel where he's at. He doesn't say, hey, you know what? Get over it. I'm going to go with you. No, he says, okay, well, take a, a heifer and, and, and use that as an excuse that you're going to make a sacrifice. He doesn't tell him to lie. He just doesn't tell him to give him the whole truth. And, and there's a big difference. And I think sometimes we're wise as people not to tell everybody everything we know. There's a time where maybe with your kids, there's, there's a point where they don't need to know everything. Or, or maybe with, with people in your life, um, there, there's a way to, to say things without lying um, but not giving all of the information. Now, of course, if you're asked specifically, you need to be truthful and trust the Lord. But God was going to cover him here. And he just said, look, use this as an excuse. He's going to do that. He isn't lying, but he isn't coming out with the entire truth. And there's wisdom in that at times. So Samuel did what the Lord said and went to Bethlehem. 
And the elders of the town trembled at his coming and said, Do you come peaceably? Now, we really can't blame them for wondering about Samuel because he had just hacked Agag to pieces. So it's obvious that people have heard about it. And they're like, look, we don't want to mess with Samuel. This guy is, you know, he's a bit violent. And they're wondering, hey, have you come here to, to judge us as well? Do you come peaceably? Are you in a good mood, Samuel? What's the deal? And he said, peaceably, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Sanctify yourself or consecrate, set yourselves apart. And, and there was a ritual by which they would do this. And come with me to the sacrifice. And, and this would have been a, a peace offering where um, the priest would, would offer and, and, and sacrifice the animal and, and give some to the Lord and then they would partake together. And it was like a celebration. It was a, a meal together. And so he's inviting them to come and partake of this. And notice that this is Jesse's family to whom the Lord has called Samuel to. To anoint the next king. And you remember in our study in Ruth. That Jesse is the grandson of Ruth and Boaz. You you know that Ruth and Boaz had a son named Obed. And Obed had a son, Jesse. And so David is the great grandson of Ruth and Boaz. And of course David is in the line in the lineage of Jesus Christ. And Jesus would not be known as the son of Abraham or the son of Moses or the son of Isaiah. He would be known as the son of David. And there's a reason for that, and we'll talk about that. So it was when they came that he looked at Eliab and said, Surely the Lord's anointed is before me. And so the firstborn of Jesse, the the oldest, the strongest, the presumably the best looking, the most handsome, the strongest, the buffest guy. This is the one they put in front of, of Samuel. Surely this is the one you're going to anoint. And the text doesn't even tell us whether Jesse understood what was going on, but he knew enough that this was a pretty cool thing. I don't know that he knew that Samuel was choosing the next king, but he knew that Samuel was going to bless one of his sons, that he was going to use him for for some reason in the kingdom, in in the the tabernacle, being set apart to be used by the Lord. And and so he says, look, this is my choice son. And, And Samuel's like, yeah, this is the guy. Surely this is the one, Lord. And look what God says. But the Lord said to Samuel, do not look at his appearance or at his physical stature. Because I have refused him or rejected him. For the Lord does not see as man sees. For man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. God was cautioning Samuel against making the same mistake that he already made. And that was to look at the appearance of a man like they had done with Saul and say, This is the guy. I mean, he's handsome, he's strong, he's intelligent, he's bigger than everybody else, he's a born leader. And it's a tendency that we all have to look at the outward appearance, to judge a book by its cover. And we don't just do that with novels, we do it with people. We look at somebody and we say, oh, that guy, he's, he's not somebody the Lord could use. And then we look at somebody else and we think, oh, that's a guy that God can use. Look at him, he looks amazing. That's a woman that God can use. People are drawn to them. And it's a mistake when we do that. 
Because God doesn't look at the physical. He looks at the heart. And that's why God uses the people that he does. That's why God uses people like me. And why God wants to use you. And why God uses the foolish things of the world. 1 Corinthians says. To confound the wise. For too long Saul has been taking God's glory. He wasn't the foolish things of the world. It made perfect sense. Of course God can use this guy. But see, David was a man that was not great in the eyes of men. And we're going to see that. And, and God is, is wanting Samuel to recognize that. Don't look at the outward appearance. Look at the heart. So Jesse called Abinadab and made him pass before Samuel. And Samuel said, neither has the Lord chosen this one. Then Jesse made Shema pass by. And he said, neither has the Lord chosen this one. Thus Jesse made seven of his sons pass before Samuel. And Samuel said to Jesse, the Lord has not chosen these. And Samuel said to Jesse, are all the young men here? In other words, are all your sons here? Then he said, there remains yet the youngest. And there he is keeping the sheep. And Samuel said to Jesse, send and bring him, for we will not sit down till he comes here. So he sent and brought him in. Now he was ruddy with bright eyes and good looking. And the Lord said, arise, anoint him, for this is the one. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. And the spirit of the Lord came upon David from that day forward. So Samuel arose and went to Ramah. And so all seven of the elder sons came before Samuel and he rejected all of them. And Samuel's like, is this all of your sons or is there somebody else? Because the Lord isn't giving me confirmation about any of these guys. There's got to be somebody else. Well, yeah, I mean, my youngest son, but certainly he's not the one. We didn't even bother to invite him because I didn't think you would even be interested. But if you want, I'll bring him in. He's tending the sheep. He's our shepherd. This tells us a couple things. One, it tells us that David did not come from a wealthy family. Because if he did, they would have had servants as their shepherds. It also tells us a lot about David. Because shepherds were despised. They, they, were, they were the guys that really nobody th- thought could do anything else. That They were the guys that, that you said, you know what? You don't have a lot of skill and you're not that intelligent. Um, why don't you go and dig that ditch or, or go tend those sheep? That, that, that's what David was doing. He was doing the, the most despised of, of jobs in, in that family. And he was not great in the eyes of men. We see this clearly. He was doing the lowest job in the household He wasn't even invited to come because Jesse thought for sure there's no way that God's going to use this guy. I mean, I love him. He's my son, but, you know, he's, he's just not that talented. But Jesse, like many of us, failed to see the amazing heart that David had, an amazing heart for the Lord. And Jesse failed to, to see potential the way that God does. And so they bring him in. And it says he was ruddy, which basically means he had a pale complexion, which was actually a, an attractive feature in that culture. He had bright eyes. He was good looking. So this isn't to say that David was like hideous, but he was just a young kid. 
Saul would be the guy that you would say, he is amazing. He's a born leader. We're drawn to him. David would be the guy that you'd say, hey, that's a cute kid. He's a nice kid, but that's about it. Good looking kid, you know, he, he, he had bright eyes. He, he had an attractive face, but it wasn't anything special. He, he wasn't great in the eyes of men. And you know what? Maybe you're not a person that has ever drawn attention. You, you've never been a great student. You didn't do well in school. You're not a great athlete. You haven't done what the world would consider to be great things. You don't have a lot of money. You've never had a great job. And you think, how, how could the Lord use me? I'm just a common person. And what we see here is that God uses people who are not great in the eyes of men. It isn't to say that God doesn't use people who maybe have a, a great amount of intellect or who have a great education or, or who are very... Um, handsome or, or tall and, and athletic. It doesn't mean that. But what it means is that if you aren't those things, that doesn't disqualify you from being used. In fact, it's a great qualification because God uses the foolish things of the world to confound the wise. David had a heart for God. That was the thing that Samuel lacked. And see, if you lack all of the worldly qualifications. The one thing that God wants from you is your heart. And if you'll give him your heart, if you'll allow him to capture your heart the way that David's heart was captured by God, you can do amazing things for the Lord. That's what God wants is your heart. Above all else, God wants our heart. He wants you to be a worshiper of him. That's what David was. He was a worshiper of God. He had a heart for God. And God said, back in chapter 13, Saul, I'm rejecting you, and I am choosing one who has a heart after my own heart. And then in chapter 15, God said through Samuel, Saul, you're rejected as king. For God is raising up one who is greater than you. What? Who could be greater than Saul? A man who had a heart after God. That's what God measures greatness by. Another thing that we see about David is that he was willing to do whatever the Lord put in front of him. We see here that he's anointed king. And, and like I said, I think it would be my tendency because I want the praise of men. It would be my tendency because I want to be important. It would be my tendency because I, I want people to recognize me. It would be my tendency to demand the position of the king right away. I mean, look, God has set this up. What are we waiting for? But look at David. He was willing to do whatever the Lord put in front of him. It says, But the spirit of the Lord departed from Saul, and a distressing spirit from the Lord troubled him. Now, don't mistake this for some kind of demonic spirit that God put upon Saul. What we need to see is that David had the Spirit of the Lord and the Spirit of God was taken from Saul and because of that it created a great dis discouragement in Saul. He knew that God had left him. He knew that God was no longer blessing him. He knew that he was on his own. And for years he's going to try to hold on to the kingdom. But he knows he's doing it in his own flesh. And that's what this distressing spirit is. 
It's a spirit of a man who recognizes that God is no longer with him. And Saul's servants said to him, Surely a distressing spirit from God is troubling you. Even his servants recognize that it's from God, but it's troubling Saul. He was wearing his emotions on his sleeve. He was bummed out. Let our master now command your servants who are before you to seek out a man who is skillful at playing the harp. And it shall be that he will play it with his hand when the distressing spirit from God is upon you and you shall be well. And so they said, look, give us the command and we'll go find a musician. We'll go find somebody to play music for you so that your spirit will be refreshed to bring some peace into your life. And, and when you read this word harp, don't think of the big orchestra, you know, harp that's huge. Just actually think more of a guitar. This was a lyre. It, it was a, an ancient guitar, really. Basically, what they're saying is, look, let us go find you a worship leader. Somebody that, that can just bring some peace into your life. So Saul said to his servants, provide me now a man who can play well and bring him to me. Then one of the servants answered and said, look, I have seen a son of Jesse, the Bethlehemite, who is skillful in playing, a mighty man of valor, a man of war, prudent in speech, and a handsome person, and the Lord is with him. And I love how these guys even recognized some of the characteristics of David. We found a man. He's skillful in playing. And this kind of tells us a little bit about qualifications for someone who leads worship. It doesn't say, you know what? The only qualification that matters is that he has a heart for God. No, he's also skillful in playing. And and sometimes people want to to be up on the stage and they want to lead worship and yet they're not any good at it. And, you know, it's kind of hard to tell people, look, you can't sing. I, I don't think that's your place. You, you're, you're just not very good. Someone who is skillful in playing. And, and it goes with anything. If a guy wants to be a teacher of the word, he needs to be skillful in it. Yes, a heart for God, but also the gifting and the skill to be able to do it. Otherwise, you're wasting people's time. You're, you're boring people with the Bible. You're, you're making people cringe in their worship when they should be ushered into the presence of God. A, a worship leader should be one that you don't notice. You shouldn't be drawn to their talent so much, nor should you be drawn to their lack of talent. And, and I've seen both in, in the same with, with any ministry. But in regard to music, I, I've seen both. I've seen somebody who's just so amazing. I remember being at this pastor's conference and, and this, this pastor who's also a worship leader, was leading worship, and he had like his 100-piece band from his big mega church. And, and I remember this, this, this black guy that was singing, and the dude was amazing. I mean, he should have been cutting albums, and he was doing like runs, you know, Mariah Carey-type runs, and, and just going off. And I mean, everybody was watching this guy. But it really wasn't bringing you into the presence of God, it, it was just like, wow, this guy ought to be, you know, selling albums. But I've also been in uh, situations where the guy's up there and he's so bad 
that you either want to cover your ears or just laugh out loud. Just like, oh my goodness, you're like embarrassed for the guy and he's missing chords and he's off key and, and neither one of those things are good. It's like you want to be so talented and so skillful but not show that. And I think it's true in any gift and I love that. David not only had a heart for God, but he was skillful in playing. He was a mighty man of valor. And so we get a little picture here. These guys recognized that David was a warrior. And I don't know what it was about David that they recognized, but he was, they knew that he was a mighty man of valor, that he was a man of war, that he was prudent in speech, that he chose his words well. And that he was a handsome person and most importantly that the Lord was with him. Now we don't know how old David was at any of these periods. We don't know how old he was when he was chosen to be king. Some people say he was as young as 10 years old. But he was probably somewhere between 10 and 15. And some time has passed obviously to this point. That he's now recognized as a man skillful in playing, a mighty man of valor, a man of war. He's not 10 years old with the reputation of a man of war, but he's probably a teenager. This is a young guy. Therefore, Saul sent messengers to Jesse and said, send me your son David who is with the sheep. I love this. He's all of the things that Saul's servants described about him, but guess what he's still doing? He's still a shepherd. He's been anointed king, but he didn't go to his dad and say, you know what, dad, I think it's high time that either one of the other sons becomes the shepherd because, hey, I've been anointed king. Or you hire a servant. I mean, we're going to be rich soon. So you know what? Put it on the credit card. I mean, figure out a way to pay for it, dad. But I'm important now. No, he's still with the sheep. He's willing to do whatever the Lord puts in front of him. And Jesse took a donkey loaded with bread, a skin of wine, and a young goat, and sent them by his son David to Saul. And so, not only does he send his son, but he sends all kinds of gifts. So David came to Saul and stood before him, and Saul loved him greatly. Why do you think Saul loved him greatly? Because he was humble? Because he was loyal? Because he did whatever he was told? Because he wasn't filled with pride and trying to take over Saul's throne? Saul loved him. There was an immediate connection. And he even became his armor bearer, which is a big deal. He became Saul's right-hand man, his personal assistant. So we see him being a shepherd. We see him being Saul's personal worship leader. We see him being Saul's armor bearer. And never once do you hear him complaining. Say, you know what, this really isn't my gift. I'm not really called to do this. You know what, Saul, you ought to be my armor bearer. Why don't you sing some songs for me? I'm the king. You've been rejected, man. We don't see any of that. He was willing to do whatever the Lord put in front of him. Then Saul sent to Jesse saying, Please let David stand before me, for he has found favor in my sight. And we're going to see uh, in the next chapter that it, it seems that David kind of came and went. He didn't stay with Saul permanently. And so he was flexible. It's like, okay, I'm over here, I'm leading worship for Saul, I'm his armor bearer, I'm back home, I'm helping my dad, I'm a shepherd, doing whatever it was that the Lord put in front of him. And so it was, whenever the Spirit from God was upon Saul, this distressing spirit, that David would take a harp and play it with his hand. Then Saul would become refreshed and well, and the distressing spirit would depart from him. 
And even in Saul's rebellion and sin, David still was there to comfort him, to refresh him, to lead him to the Lord. And again, I think my tendency would be, you know what, man? You're an idiot. Why don't you repent? Why don't you turn your life over to the Lord? But David just did whatever God put in front of him. He knew that wasn't his place. He, he knew it wouldn't be well received. Is Saul really going to listen to this young kid in that way? You see, Saul at this time has no idea that David is being prepared to take his place. Interesting, though, that Saul became so close to him and relied upon him and was even being refreshed by him by the very man that would take his place. But I love that David was willing to do whatever the Lord put in front of him. What's God putting in front of you right now? Our tendency is to look to the future. I I remember coming out of Bible college and all that I wanted to do was to be a pastor and to teach the Bible. And in my perspective, I'm sure this is exaggerating, but looking back, I think my perspective was just that I'm God's gift to the church. God's going to use me. The phone is going to be ringing off the hook. And six months later when I'm scrubbing the floor at Costco and the phone hasn't rang once and nobody really cares. And the extent of my ministry was, was coming into work and, and having the guys in the meat shop ask me, hey Ryan, what's the word for the day? They knew I was a Christian and they knew I wanted to be a pastor. What's the word for today? And, and the Lord began to just work on my heart that, hey, here's an opportunity. Are you going to have something to say? Are you going to be willing to teach these three or four guys? Are you going to be willing to share my word with, with whoever I put in front of you? And, and I remember those years. And I, I remember being an assistant pastor, unpaid, and, and just doing a lot of things that, that I probably didn't really want to do, but it was what was needed to be done, and, and not doing a lot of the things that I wanted to do. I remember having lots of vision and not being able to put any of it into practice and having my ideas shut down and it really, you know, ticking me off. Just thinking like, man, I've got good ideas. I've got a lot of vision. And yet, are we just going to be willing to do what God puts in front of us that day? Because so often, we're so focused on the future that we lose sight of the present and what God wants to do right now. And don't do that. Don't miss out on what God wants to do right where you're at. Maybe you think, man, I can't wait for my kids to get a little older. Don't miss out on these years when they're small. Maybe you're thinking, man, I can't wait to to get out of high school or out of school, period. And you know what? I remember being there, and it doesn't get any easier. Maybe you're thinking, oh, I can't wait until I have kids or until I get married or, or until you fill in the blank. We're always looking ahead. And the thing is, is that if we don't take advantage of the present, the future isn't going to be so great. God wants to use us right where we're at, and he wants us to be willing to do whatever he puts in front of us. A third thing I love about David is actually found in in verses 20 through 37. So we'll, we'll read the first 19 verses together to get the context, but... But really this third thing is that he trusted God above people and circumstances. And as we enter into chapter 17, it's probably the most familiar chapter in all of the Bible. David and Goliath. I mean, there, there's no, no story in the Bible more familiar 
than David and Goliath. Now the Philistines gathered their armies together to battle and were gathered at Soko, which belongs to Judah. They encamped between Soko and Azekah in Ephes Damim. And Saul and the men of Israel were gathered together and they encamped in the valley of Elah and drew up in battle array against the Philistines. And so the Philistines are stood on a mountain on one side and Israel stood on a mountain on the other side with a valley between them, the text tells us. And a champion went out from the camp of the Philistines named Goliath from Gath, whose height was six cubits in a span. We don't exactly know how tall this was, but it was at least eight feet and could have been as much as ten feet. This guy's huge. And, and we shouldn't think of like, you remember Manute Bull who used to play in the NBA? He was like seven foot five, but he weighed like 110 pounds. We, we, we shouldn't think of Manute Bull. We should think of like Shaq. Did, did you see Shaq the other night when he got mad? Um, at the officials because he ran into somebody and they called a flagrant. And, and it's when, you, when Shaq gets mad that you recognize how big that dude is. He's not only like 7'2", but he's like 370 pounds. He's just mammoth. And that would have been Goliath. He, he's not only tall, but he's big. He's got the physique of a bodybuilder and he's like 9 feet tall. And so this is their champion. And what they would do at this time, and it's kind of smart, really. Maybe we ought to think about doing this. What they would do is they would send a representative from their nation to say, look, I'll fight whoever you've got, and the winner is the winner of the war. And we'll all go back home, and, and we'll say, you won. Our best against your best. I mean, that sounds smart to me. Rather than, you know, like all these casualties and, and everything... I could get in trouble for getting into that. But it, it's just kind of a brilliant strategy. But here's Goliath, and he's nine feet tall, and he's huge. And who are the Israelites going to put up against him? So it's not really fair. And, and you can just picture the scene. Here's the, the Philistines on one side with Goliath, just like, come on, who do you got? And the Israelites on the other side, just like, who do we got, you know? He had a bronze helmet on his head, and he was armed with a coat of mail. And the weight of the coat was 5,000 shekels of bronze. And he had bronze armor on his legs and a bronze javelin between his shoulders. Now the staff of his spear was like a weaver's beam, and his iron superhead, spearhead weighed 600 shekels, and a shield bearer went before him. This is totally unfair. Not only is the guy huge, but he's also got an armor bearer, and he also has all of this weaponry. And historians tell us that his weapons and his armor probably weighed 150 pounds. That that's how much weight he was able just to walk around with and, and yet fight comfortably. Then he stood and cried out to the armies of Israel and said to them, Why have you come out to line up for battle? Am I not a Philistine, and you the servants of Saul? Choose a man for yourselves, and let him come down to me. If he is able to fight with me and kill me, then we will be your servants. But if I prevail against him and kill him, then you shall be our servants and serve us. 
And the Philistines said, I defy the armies of Israel this day. Give me a man that we may fight together. And so he's mocking them. When Saul and all Israel heard these words of the Philistine, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. Saul, some experts tell us, was probably seven feet tall. He was at least head and shoulders taller than everybody else. He's a big dude. He's a strong guy. He's a military genius. But he was afraid. He wanted no part of Goliath. He had probably heard about Goliath. He had maybe seen Goliath tear people apart. And he just thought, you know what? I'm good. I'm, I'm okay. I don't want any part of this. And he was afraid. Even though he was so strong and so capable and so great in the eyes of men, in reality, he was a coward because he didn't trust the Lord. Now, David was the son of that Ephrathite of Bethlehem, Judah, whose name was Jesse, and who had eight sons. And the man was old, advanced in years in the days of Saul. And so some time has gone on here because Jesse wasn't described this way earlier. The three oldest sons of Jesse had gone to follow Saul to the battle. And so it's still the three eldest sons who were known as guys that you'd want on your side. The names of his three sons who went to the battle were Eliab, the firstborn, next to him Abinadab, and the third Shammah. David was the youngest, and the three oldest followed Saul. But David occasionally went and returned from Saul to feed his father's sheep, at Bethlehem. And in this, this translation here occasionally is probably not the best. It, it ought to say that David went back and forth. Just like I talked about. He was willing to do whatever. He just kind of went back and forth. And the Philistine drew near and presented himself 40 days, morning and evening. And so you picture the scene. 40 days, Goliath would go out. He would mock the Israelites. He would wait. Nobody would show up. He'd go back home. He'd come back out. Anybody today? Forty days this went on. Then Jesse said to his son David, Take now for your brothers an ephah of this dried grain and these ten loaves and run to your brothers at the camp. I love this. Hey, servant boy, shepherd boy, least in the family, will you go take some food to your brothers? You know the ones that I'm really proud of? Again, Jesse does not recognize that David has any talent, potential. You don't see Jesse going, You know what? For many days now, Goliath has been challenging our people. What do you think about challenging him yourself? There's no thought that David would be the guy. And carry these ten cheeses to the captain of their thousand and see how your brothers fare and bring back news of them. Go, take some food, see how they're doing, bring back news to me, would you? Now now Saul and they and all the men of Israel were in the valley of Elah, fighting with the Philistines. So David rose early in the morning, left the sheep with a keeper, and took the things, and went as Jesse had commanded him. And he came to the camp as the army was going out to the fight and shouting for the battle. And so we're going to begin to see that David trusted God above people and circumstances. When nobody else is trusting God to defeat Goliath, David does. He comes to the camp. For Israel and the Philistines had drawn up in battle array, army against army. And David left his supplies in the hand of the supply keeper, ran to the army and came and greeted his brothers. Then as he talked with them, there was the champion, the Philistine of Gath, Goliath by name, coming up from the armies of the Philistines. 
And he spoke according to the same words. So David heard them. And all the men of Israel, when they saw the man, fled from him and were dreadfully afraid. All the men of Israel, Saul included, were dreadfully afraid. They were freaked out. Nobody wanted any part of Goliath. So the men of Israel said, Have you seen this man who has come up? Surely he has come up to defy Israel. And it shall be that the man who kills him, the king will enrich with great riches, will give him his daughter and give his father's house exemption from taxes in Israel. And so Saul is getting so desperate that he says, Look, we're going to sweeten the deal. And I'll make you rich. I'll give you my daughter, and you won't have to pay taxes if you can kill Goliath. But nobody was taking him up on the deal. Then David spoke to the men who stood by him, saying, What shall be done for the man who kills this Philistine and takes away the reproach from Israel? For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? We can see that courage is mounting in David. And the people answered him in this manner, saying, So shall it be done for the man who kills him. Now Eliab, his oldest brother, heard when he spoke to the men. And Eliab's anger was aroused against David. And he said, Why did you come down here? And with whom have you left those few sheep in the wilderness? I know your pride and the insolence of your heart. For you have come down to see the battle. And so Eliab is really ticked off at David because... He doesn't think David has any place here to be asking these kinds of questions. He thinks that David is simply wanting to get someone else to fight in the battle so that he can watch it. He thinks that David in his pride is wanting to draw attention to himself. And again, David's brothers don't know him very well. And David said, what have I done now? Is there not a cause? No one else was willing to step up against Goliath. But David recognized this is a good cause. This is something that we ought to get behind. Then he turned from him toward another and said the same thing. And these people answered him as the first ones did. Now when the words which David spoke were heard, they reported them to Saul and he sent for him. David was the only one of the multitude who was saying anything like this. Who was even sounding remotely interested in taking on this challenge. It was so unique that his words got back to Saul. Then David said to Saul, Let no man's heart fail because of him. Your servant will go and fight with the Philistine. In other words, you know what? I'm not going to be ruled by fear. I'm not going to be ruled by circumstance. I'm not afraid of people. One person with God is a majority. We can do this. Let your servant go and fight the Philistine. Again, there's humility here with David. Let your servant. I'll I'll give it a try. There's no arrogance. It's just a trust in God. And Saul said to David, You are not able to go against this Philistine to fight with him. For you are a youth, and he a man of war from his youth. And so here's Saul with a lot of confidence in David, right? Oh yeah, you can do this. You're able. No, you can't do this. Are you out of your mind? You're a youth. You're too young. You're too inexperienced. And, and this guy has been fighting in battles since he was your age. Get a grip. 
You can't do this, David. You're out of your mind. And you know what? When people tell you that you can't do something that you know God is calling you to do, that ought to be motivation. Not discouragement. It ought to motivate you. When people say to you, you can't do that. And you know for a fact that God is telling you that you can. And there's been so many things in my life and so many things in the life of this church that we've set out to do that people have said, that'll never work. You can't do that. And that ought to motivate us because God can do anything. And if God is calling you to do something, he'll give you the ability. You don't need to have a certain amount of experience. I can't tell you how many people have told me, well, when you get some experience, then you can do that. You know what? I've got a little bit of experience now. And it doesn't mean anything. God doesn't need our experience. Sometimes experience can be a detriment because you keep doing the same stupid stuff. And sometimes God wants somebody fresh who's willing to break the mold and say, you know what, we're going to do it differently. And, and that's why I have such a heart to, to get inexperience in young people involved in ministry. And, and why I, I wish that, that there were more Young people in Prineville, man, I wish there was a college here. You're you're seeing a little bit of my covetous heart. I wish there there were more young people that stuck around here that we could involve in ministry. I wish there were more young people who were sold out and on fire for Jesus. But I I love that, that Saul says to him, you can't do this. You're just a youth. You have no experience. But David said to Saul, your servant used to keep his father's sheep. And I mean, think about that. Just think about that sentence. Here he's speaking to the most powerful man in Israel. And this powerful man is telling him, you can't do this. You're too inexperienced. And his response is, hey, I used to keep my father's sheep. That's like saying, hey, I can do this. I I used to dig ditches. Hey, I can do this. I used to clean the stalls at the stable. Really? Wow, that's impressive. But he goes on and he begins to talk about some things that he has done. I used to keep my father's sheep. And when a lion or a bear came and took a lamb out of the flock, I went out after it and struck it and delivered the lamb from its mouth. And when it arose against me, I caught it by its beard and struck and killed it. Your servant has killed both lion and bear, and this uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them, seeing he has defied the armies of the living God. I think that Saul, and and I'm just reading into the text, but I bet you at this point he doesn't know whether to be really impressed with David or to laugh in his face. Have you ever had those experiences where you're not sure if you should take somebody seriously or not? I think that's what it would have been like for Saul. Like, really? Did you really kill a lion and a bear with your bare hands? I don't think I'm going to believe that. I just don't. I think if I heard that from David, I'd be like, yeah, whatever. You're like one of these weird people that fantasizes and thinks it's reality. Because this isn't normal. This wouldn't have been normal shepherd activity. Shepherds weren't expected to run down lions, take them by the beard, and kill them with their bare hands. It was like, hey, it, it was just part of the, the business. Oh, you lost a lamb. Don't let it happen. You've got to protect them. But you're not expected to run down predators and kill them. 
And so I kind of picture that. I don't think Saul took him seriously. I just don't. Moreover, David said, The Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear, he will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. And Saul said to David, Go and the Lord be with you. I kind of picture this like, you know what? If you think you can do it, go for it. Let's see what happens. And David is simply trusting in God above people and his circumstances. That's the bottom line here. So Saul clothed David with his armor and he put a bronze helmet on his head and he also clothed him with a coat of mail. David fastened his sword to his armor and tried to walk for he had not tested them. And David said to Saul, I cannot walk with these for I have not tested them. So David took them off. Then he took his staff in his hand and he chose for himself five smooth stones from the brook And he put them in a shepherd's bag in a pouch which he had. And his sling was in his hand. And he drew near to the Philistine. So the Philistine came and began drawing near to David. And the man who bore the shield went before him. And when the Philistine looked about and saw David, he disdained him. For he was only a youth, ruddy and good looking. So the Philistine said to David, Am I a dog that you come to me with sticks? And this Hebrew word for dog here is actually used in Deuteronomy speaking of a homosexual prostitute. And so there's a little bit more to this word. I think that that Goliath is saying, look, am I a queer? Am I just like a wuss in your mind? You don't think that I can just rip you apart with my bare hands? Are you kidding me? You come with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. And the Philistine said to David, Come to me, and I will give your flesh to the birds of the air and the beasts of the field. Goliath had some cool challenges, some some intimidating things. I mean, this would would be good TV material. Look, I'm going to rip you apart, and I'm going to feed you to the birds. And David said to the Philistine, You come to me with a sword, with a spear, and with a javelin. But I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel whom you have defied. David doesn't come in his own name. David doesn't talk about his experience or how wonderful he is. He just says, look, you come in the flesh, I come in the spirit. And that's the difference. And what I love about David in all of this, and it's the fourth thing that I want us to recognize is that David realized and recognized that he needed to be himself in order to be used by the Lord. Saul wanted to clothe him with his armor, but he just realized, look, this isn't me. I can't wear this. It's too big, and it's just not comfortable. It's not me. And I also love that David realized that God had prepared him for what he was going to do in him and through him. God had prepared him for this. All of those nights where I'm sure David was thinking, you know what, why am I the one out here? Why am I the shepherd? Why, why do I have to do this lowly job? All these lonely nights. And yet it was in those lonely nights that God was preparing him to be the champion of Israel, to one day be the king. And you know what? There's been a lot of lonely nights in all of our lives. And God is preparing us for what he has for what he wants to do. And if we despise the day of small things, we will never become the person that God wants us to become. Embrace those times. 
Allow God to do His work in you. I remember many lonely nights. I remember coming home from Bible college, getting married, and having three jobs. I worked at Costco, I worked for a tree trimmer, and then I I worked uh, as a security guard for these parking lots in Olympia where you write people tickets if they don't pay for their parking space and getting screamed and yelled at by people because now they had to pay $25 instead of 8 And I remember many lonely nights walking around these parking structures just thinking like, Lord, what in the world is going on? Why do I have to work three stupid jobs? And I remember working three jobs that year and making $17,000. Three jobs working like 50, 60 hours a week. And just all I wanted to do was, was teach the Bible. And, and God was preparing me through those times. And God is, is still preparing me for what he has. And God is preparing you. And little did David know the work that God was doing and what he wanted him to do. David says, this day the Lord will deliver you into my hand. I love the confidence that he has in the Lord. He doesn't say, I'm going to do this, but the Lord will do this. This day, where's your confidence at? Some of us have no confidence at all. And that is a sinful humility. Some of us have confidence in our flesh, and that is sinful pride. And what God wants is for us to have confidence in Him. This day, the Lord will deliver you into my hand, and I will strike you and take your head from you. In this day I will give the carcasses of the camp of the Philistines to the birds of the air and the wild beasts of the earth, that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel. Then all this assembly shall know that the Lord does not save with sword and spear, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hands. You can just picture David just sort of gaining confidence in the Lord, and is represented with his speech. And so it was when the Philistine arose and came and drew near to meet David, that David hurried and ran toward the army to meet the Philistine. Then David put his hand in the bag and took out a stone, and he slung it and struck the Philistine in his forehead, so that the stone sank into his forehead, and he fell on his face to the earth. So David prevailed over the Philistine with a sling and a stone, and struck the Philistine and killed him. But there was no sword in the hand of David. And so the thing that was in his hand, the thing that David had learned to use as a shepherd boy, that was the thing that God used to accomplish his will. And God wants to use whatever is in your hand. Whatever circumstances that life has dealt you, whatever events that have happened in your life, that's what God wants to use. And so instead of despising your life, Instead of despising your experience, instead of despising your lack of intellect or your lack of talent or whatever it is that you despise in your life, see that God wants to use it for his glory. Whatever's in your hand. David didn't know how to use a sword, but he knew how to use a sling. So quit thinking about the things that you don't know how to do and start embracing that which God has allowed you to be a part of because God wants to use that in your life to do amazing things. Therefore David ran and stood over the Philistine, took his sword, he took Goliath's sword, he drew it out of its sheath and killed him and cut off his head with it. And when the Philistines saw that their champion was dead, they fled. 
Now the men of Israel and Judah arose and shouted and pursued the Philistines as far as the entrance of the valley into the gates of Ekron. And the wounded of the Philistines fell along the road to Sharam, even as far as Gath and Ekron. Then the children of Israel returned from chasing the Philistines and they plundered their tents. And David took the head of the Philistine and brought it to Jerusalem. And he put his armor in his tent. When Saul saw David going out against the Philistine, he said to Abner, the commander of the army, Abner, whose son is this youth? And Abner said, as your soul lives, O king, I do not know. So the king said, inquire whose son this young man is. Now, this doesn't mean that Saul doesn't know who David is. He's obviously unaware of his family and his lineage, and it would have been important because now he's giving him his daughter. He wanted to know, who's, his, who's he related to? Who's his family? What's the deal here? And also remember that many years have gone by since Saul first met David, and he was going in and out and back and forth, and Saul was a busy guy. He doesn't know all of the details of David's life. Because remember that Saul sent his servants to Jesse to get David. It doesn't say that Saul even knew who he was, who David's family was. So the king said, inquire whose son this young man is. Then as David returned from the slaughter of the Philistine, Abner took him and brought him before Saul with the head of the Philistine in his hand. And Saul said to him, whose son are you, young man? So David answered, I am the son of your servant, Jesse the Bethlehemite. Now I realize that we've, we've gone over tonight, and I apologize for that. But I want to close with this. There have been a million sermons given on David and Goliath. There have been books written, movies made, Facing the Giants. Max Lucado has a book called Facing Your Giants or something. There, there have been a multitude of implications made. And, and I don't want to give you some cheese ball thought that whatever giant is in your life, God is going to destroy it. You know what? That isn't always true. It just isn't. There's a lot of giants in our life. That God hasn't killed yet. There's a lot of things that, that are still there. But the thing is, is that God doesn't want us to be intimidated or to be fearful of those things. And that ultimately, God will destroy those because he's already destroyed death. Who's our biggest giant? Who's our biggest enemy? And in reality, that's the thing we fear the most. But I will say this. That whatever giants are in your life, God wants to use them to point you to Jesus, who is really David in this story. See, we often are, are made to be David in this story. And I'm not convinced, I, I don't think that that's the implication or the application for us. I don't think we're David. I think Jesus is David in this story. And I think Jesus conquered our enemy. He conquered death. He conquered sin. He conquered the grave. And it's the gospel that God wants us to embrace here and to see that Jesus, the son of David, came lowly, despised by men. Who is this guy? What's he going to accomplish? Taking on the giant of sin and death of the devil and conquering it in a way that no one would have ever guessed. I mean, if you're going to conquer man's greatest giant, I mean, you've got to do it in some really illustrious, 
way. But that's not at all how Jesus conquered our giant, is it? He conquered it by being crucified on a cross. He conquered it in the most humble manner possible. And that's, you guys, what I want to leave you with, is the gospel. Is Jesus, who's conquered the giants in our life. Maybe not in the timing that you want. Maybe you're still dealing with those things and God is working in your life. But ultimately, every giant, whether it's a mental disability, whether it's a physical malady, whether it's financial, whether it's relational, whatever giant you have in your life right now, ultimately, Jesus is going to conquer that. Because one day, we're going to stand before him and all of our problems are going to be gone. It's the gospel that I see here. Not some cheesy implication that you're David and he wants you to take a sling and he wants you to go out and kill all the giants in your life. You know what? There might be some, some application there. But I think it leaves us in the wrong place trying to defeat our giants when Jesus has already done it. Let's stand and pray together. Father, I thank you for your word, Lord. I thank you for just people being attentive tonight as we went over. And and Lord, I I just pray that these truths would go down into our hearts and Lord, that they would produce fruit. God, that you would do a great work in our lives for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. You've been listening to Pastor Ryan Couch of Calvary Chapel, Crook County. For more information, you can write to us at P.O. Box 378, Prineville, Oregon, 97754. Thanks for listening, and God bless.